Welcome to the Archive Room Podcast. The Nation Station, Radio. Faster my, I'm Judith Lay and I'm very pleased to find you waiting for me at the door to the Archive Room, the place where we keep stories of island life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in. Sit down and make yourself comfortable and let's listen to this week's selection. In the archive room last week, we met Walter Clark and listened to him talking with Louise Quirk about his work at the Manx Museum, where he was a technician for almost 40 years and played a major part in creating the Folklife Gallery there, capturing an authentic snapshot of Manx rural life in years gone by. Walter died in 2007, but will long be remembered for his dedication to keeping the Manx language alive and for contributing to our culture by recording, in the late 1940s, the last native Manx speakers. Let's listen now as Walter explains to David Collister how he developed his passion for the language, his involvement with the Manx Language Society and where it led him. Walter Clark, a man steeped in the Manx language and Manx law, being born in the island, yes? That's right. Oh, yes, in Ramsey, yes, 1928. And did you learn Manx as a young man? No. My grandfather had a fair bit of Manx and, and my aunt when I was out at Coolbane at Solby, but um, I got the, the thirst for it, if you like, from them and then uh, went out to find these these old people that could speak it. Yes. yes. And then through Willie Ratcliffe and Charlie Crane... I was introduced to them all and got into the, the swing of things, and that's how it started. So this was joining in Cheshire Gilgut, mm, yes, the Manx yes, Language yes, Society. The Manx Language Society in yes. Cheshire Gilgut. It was a, a collective effort, really. You know, we yeah. we just we wanted to record the old people, but we didn't. We had neither the money nor the means of doing it. But Jack Gale from Port St Mary, fortunately, stepped forward and loaned us the money. It was eighty pounds. I think it was a lot of money in those days. And we bought this sound mirror. It was an American sound mirror, they called it, with paper tapes, five-inch reel-to-reel paper tapes. We lugged this thing around the country, all around the island, uh, sometimes by bus, sometimes by car, sometimes by van, sometimes we carried it, you know, uh, to get to the people. And, of course, the old people in the outlying districts didn't have electric, so we had to find a, a friendly house that had electricity, and asked them if we could bring some of the old people down to record them. And then again, electricity at that time was a, a sort of a, an unknown quantity. It used to surge and it used to drop. and it, it, Bit of fluctuation, it, oh, yes. it was dreadful at times, you know. Yes. How did that affect the recording in those days? Well, all of a sudden they would they would sort of go to a shriek, you know, or, yeah. or else it would just drop down to a very deep bass and you had to switch the machine off yeah. and wait for the, the power to right itself and then switch it back on again, you know. So did you have a microphone sort of sitting on a table or handheld? What yeah, well, the, the old people at first were a little bit shy of the mic, but what we used to do, we'd sit around talking to them and I'd put this uh, microphone, which it had about a four-foot, lead on it either on the floor or on the table or nearby and we just simply talked to them and ignored it and then after a little while they ignored it and the odd thing was with a a lot of them when we played some of the tapes back to let them listen to it 
they started talking to the machine. You know, they would answer the machine. Some of the old people, you know, they would be be gesturing at the machine yeah. there and shaking their head or talking. But or, they wouldn't recognise their own voices either. No, they? they didn't. No, they no. didn't. No, they would say, "Who's that fellow talking?" <laughs> you know, yeah, I suppose it's a natural reaction. I would think. Didn't the Manx Museum have equipment for recording in any case? Well, they did, but um, it was, I think, bought originally to record uh, bird song and things like that, and. Uh, we weren't allowed to use it, so we had to get our own machine. So see. they wouldn't give you permission to take it out? No, not, no, mm. they didn't really. Mm. I understand eventually they did let it go out with one or two of the collectors to do mm. one or two recordings, you mm. know, but I never used it at all. And this paper tape then was something new oh, to everybody, was it? It was indeed. It was, uh, there were five-inch reels with, with uh, very thin paper tape coated with iron filings. Mm. And, of course, if, if the power surge... Uh, the, the tape snapped, and there was no such thing as sellotape in those days. There was that old fish glue paper <laughs> yeah. tape thing, which... Like flypaper almost. That's right, it was, and you had to lick it and sort of suck it and hold it <laughs> till it bonded, yeah. and then thread it back into the machine again, you know. Mm. We always carried a pair of scissors with this and a bit of this tape for repairs, yes. yes. So how many native Manx speakers <laughs> would there have been at that time, then? There were 18 on the island at that time. And this was 1951? Uh, 50, 48 to 50, yes, right. around that period, yeah. Right. Yes. There was Jackie Neen, the Gao, the blacksmith in the north. There was John Thomas Cacken, Ballagarrett. He was a farmer, marvellous Manx. Mr and Mrs Neil Ballagarrett, they had marvellous Manx. There was Harry Boyd from Balaf who eventually, unfortunately, finished up in the infirmary, again, very cooperative with us. Mm. And there was an old fellow called Danny Kane from Little London, which we only managed to get a little snippet of. He was very ill at the time, and mm. we didn't get very much from him. Mm. And then we moved down to Craignish, around that area, Ned Madrill, Mrs Lowey, Kirkle, Mrs Ellen, a Karen, a Craignish. She had wonderful ranks. Tommy Lee's Kerakeel, he is marvellous, thanks too. So what was the team that went round then? There was you and Bill, uh, Bill Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe. And later on, Doug Farragher, Dougie yeah. Breger, as we used to call him, yeah. uh, Doug Farragher. He, he was a means of transport, latterly <laughs> for us, you know. <laughs> and the tapes in those days were, I think, 25 shillings each, which was quite a lot of money, you see. Mm. So we'd have a whip round to get the, the money to get two or three tapes, and then I'd ring Doug up and say, look, we've got some tapes here. Right, where'll we go this week? Or, and we go out at the weekends or in the evenings to these people. So this really was the operation of some enthusiastic amateurs oh, yes, who yeah. were financing themselves yeah. for really a very important project that should have been properly financed, probably, shouldn't it? Well, in retrospect, it should have been, yeah, yes. but it never was. No. Well, now, what about their personalities? What about the, the way they um, approached you? Because some of them would have been known to you, but not all of them, would No, they? no, they weren't. And yet, once they got to know us and realised that we were really genuinely interested, mm. they couldn't do enough for us. Yeah. The Gao, Jackie Neen, he was, I think, 95 or 96 when I first met him. He lived to be over 100, of course. Mm. He went blind, sadly, towards the end, but... Uh, a tremendous character. He'd been a blacksmith, he'd been a, a farmer, he'd been a miller, 
you know, he, he really was a, a, a wonderful person. Would he have had much of an education then? Well, I asked him one time about how he got started in the smithy and he said, well, when he was about 10, he stopped going to school and went to work for his father. And I said, well, what wages did you get? And he, he said, what wages, he said. We got fed. And I said, well, didn't you get anything at all for, for, for working? No, he said, you didn't get anything for learning in those days. <laughs> you, you had to be really competent before you got anything, you know. Yeah. And he would work from, from 7 in the morning till 8 and 9 o'clock at night because the smithy was the hub of the newses, if you like, of all the parishes. Oh, yes. Everybody went there for something and all the newses came to the, the blacksmith and he passed it on to somebody else and, and so on. So really the smithy was the hub of the life. In, in it was that very, day. very important to the whole community. Really. Oh, it was indeed. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're yeah. talking about horses and no vehicles. And That's things. right, yes, yeah. all horse and, and cart, yeah. yeah. And all the implements had to be made, of course. The, uh, the, the scythes, the sickles, the, uh, the ploughs and things like that. When they were using fuel for fires and so on, the, the, what, what would they use in the smithy? Would they use turf? Oh, yes they, they, yes, they used turf. And occasionally, if they were hooping a wheel, they would use chaff. The, the gows told me frequently that he's hooped a wheel with chaff, uh-huh. you know. Mm. Yeah. So they'd go and cut the turf as well, would they? Oh, yes, up the mountain. It was all cut either up the mountain or, in the case of the people, some of the people at Jerbian places, out in the currucks at Sulby there, you yes. know. Mm. Uh, the mountain turf was easier in a way because... It was drier and it could be drained easily. Mm. But, of course, like all things, the deeper you went down, the better the quality of, of the stuff it was. Yeah. And the curric turf w- was just like porridge in yeah. many ways. They a lot of drying out. Oh, they used, to, they used to fill a cart with it and kick the cart in the, in the, in the farm street and leave it to drain on its own. Mm. And then a band of, usually a band of women... They used to be called uh, the, the turf bakers. They used to come round and they would mould it by hand. The gows had like bonnags, you know, yeah. and, and and stack it to f- complete the drying, you yeah. know. But th- that was their occupation, going round, uh, making briquettes, if you like, in, in modern terms. Mm. Yeah. What about religion then? I mean, we, we think of... of the south of the island particularly as being very strong Methodists, but uh, mm. what were they in the north here? Well, very few of them spoke much about religion no. at all, really, no. you know. But they uh, would be churchgoers, I oh, suppose. Oh, yes, they, they, yes they, they, the Gao in particular, Jackie Neen, he told me when he can remember when he was christened. In those days, of course, they, they didn't christen a child just after it was born, like they do shortly after, like today. They'd waited till there was a, a scutch of them in, three or four maybe, and then the oldest would walk to, to church to be christened and he walked to St Jude's yeah. uh, to be christened because he remembers people coming out to see them as they walked along the road. Who had, Obviously the Bush Telegraph was in operation and uh, would give them sweetmeats and cakes and things like that, yeah. you know, on the way to the, to the church. Right. The church being not just a place of worship, but also a social centre, was something that Callan Hudson from Dorby also discussed with John Kenyuk. It was a social centre, really, wasn't That's it, right, as well yeah. as a place of worship? Another story that my father used to tell was uh, about the anniversary. There was that many people used to go into chapel in those days. The whole chapel was full. Every pew was filled. And the local preacher, whoever he was, he started a sermon. He got on about the prophets. 
as you know, there's an awful lot of profits. <laughs> and it was going on and on and on. And now it's, it's about quarter to five. <laughs> he must be out at half past three. And he's going on. And then the finish, he says, and now, he said, we come to Elijah. Where are we going to put him? And as I said, the seats were getting hard and people were fidgeting. A fellow named Tom Ratliff was down right under the pulpit on one of these hard seats. And he just stood up and he said, well, he said, he can have my seat, I won't have tea. <laughs> and got up and walked out. <laughs> And Eddie Lees remembers the Salvation Army and the Sailor's Shelter in his native Peel. In those days, there was a Salvation Army Corps in Peel, a very, very good one, and they operated from what is now the Peel Youth Club down on the front. Mm. And on a Saturday night, they would play down in the Market Street, up at Athel Place, down on the promenade. They went round holding this open-air meeting. They, they were very, very popular. And, and another thing, talking about meetings such as that, the Sailor's Shelter... Home of Refuge, it was called, actually, first of all. The sailor's shelter there. On a Sunday night, after chapel and church came out, there was always a religious meeting in the sailor's shelter. Now, all they had to heat it in the wintertime was one of these big iron pot pellied iron stores. Red hot it would be, (laughs) and the place would be absolutely packed. I can remember Christopher Shimon, who was the MHK for Peel. I can remember him talking there. I can remember my father singing a solo there. After chapel this was, and they all met there. It was a marvellous meeting that they they used to have. It wasn't preaching at the audience. It was Mm. talking to them. A lot of fishermen there. Uh, Very, very good. Let's go back now to David Collister's conversation with Walter Clark. David wondered if the old people that Walter interviewed had any tales to tell about the little people, and it seems that they most certainly had, particularly the gow, the blacksmith, Jackie Neen, from Balaf. He said he'd seen them often out in the curricks there, you know, described how they were dressed, good jerkers, breeching gorum, he used to say, a red coat and, and blue trousers, as Van Voer... Her mullach had the, and a big hat, a big tall hat on the, on the heads, you know. Uh, it, it's interesting, really. He, he he often said he'd been took by the fairies. Uh, I would suspect that uh, he was fond of a little drop of the crater, you know, and yeah. and uh, sometimes when the boys got under the influence of drink, they, they, if they uh, fell astray or fell asleep in the head somewhere, they... Uh, as an excuse, yes. they would say they'd been taken by the fairies. Oh, right. <clears throat> now, when they were talking about the fairies, I mean, when he was talking about their dress and, and so on, yeah. do you think that he genuinely believed that he'd seen them, or do you think he was doing this for the benefit of your team and the tape recording and, and, and the, 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 yeah. the sort of uh, history that he's been brought up with? Well, we were a bit sceptical at first, but we have one tape where he describes how he was took by the fairies and he said that he was walking home and they suddenly they, they led him into this field and he walked around the field four to five times and then they went out past on the road again and he he, he described it all in Manx. He says, Vamigul Shantai has doot me. I went past this house and I said, the shore Tai June, that's John's house, that's the shore 
Thai Harry, that's Harry's house. And he said eventually he got home and he said there were two blisters on his heels. He said, got his and like half eggs. Mm-hmm. And he went to bed and when he woke the next morning, there wasn't a trace of any of the blisters. He said, uh, because they were fairy blisters. Really? went during the night but he he was very sincere about that one but um were there others that you spoke to that spoke of fairies then yes harry boyd uh, from Blaf, he mentions them uh, uh skadoon he used to call them the the shadows oh. and skadoon gaulach gaulach is uh, chains it means they they rattle made a noise you know mm. but a lot of them i think sense that uh, a little bit of smuggling was going on now and again in the old days and of course it was all usually hidden in the in the churchyard uh. and they wanted to keep people away from the churchyard so they created these uh, illusions and noises uh, right. to, so the people wouldn't go near the churchyard to find out what they were up to. I don't uh, know but yes, that, that, yes. that's something and yet the Gao told me now he was about 98 that time, when he was a boy, that was going back almost a hundred years, he spoke to an old woman who was very old in those days. That's going back nearly sort of two hundred yeah. years. About June the Dock. Now June the Dock, John the Dock, he lived at, uh, at Jerby, and he and his brother used to smuggle. They had their own still there, you see, and they used to run the stuff across to the Scotch coast uh. and the Galway coast there. This stuff that they'd be brewing then, Walter, would have been the sort of thing that would probably have created, if you took enough of it, hallucinations then. I would think so. It was like Pachine. Yes. You know, the Irish Pachine, you see. So that, to some extent, might explain some of the fairies. And a lot of the old people thought that because the flour wasn't refined as it is today and various herbs grew in it, Mm. all went into the mix, if you like, you know, because tea, uh, tea wasn't their drink in those days it was a form of of ale of some sort and they brewed all sorts of potions and things Mm. well if these these herbs or these plants went in with the flour heaven knows what you were eating in the old they'd be taking drugs without knowing they they would be indeed yes yeah well it's interesting uh talking about about this fairy law because i mean it has been in in Manx tradition for probably as long as uh, anyone could it ever has. go back, really. I don't know how to to think about it. I've been a little bit sceptical, I must admit. Yeah. But I, what I have found is that the Gao described one time how he, he came across a, a group of them in the Kuruks, and he said he, he used a particular shout... Now, the old people had different cries and different calls for different animals, you know, like the, the, the cattle and the, the, the pigs and things like that, mm. uh, to call them in. Mm. And he used a particular shout, and he said uh, they all lifted and disappeared. Now, Mrs. Neil Balagarrett, when she was young, she used to be sent down to the Curraghs of Pride there while uh, her father and her uncle, they had the loaded guns ready when the geese came in and she would go down and she used exactly the same shout that the gow used to lift the geese uh, so that they could take pot shots at yeah. them. So somewhere along the line, 
I'm beginning to think maybe that a lot of these things they saw floating about and dancing about in the curricks were, were birds, not, not fairies, yes. you know. When David went to visit two farmers from the Grenaby area, he was keen to find out what they knew about the little people. But, as you can hear, Howard Jones and George Garrett and a few other friends with them in the farmhouse were having such a good time that David was in danger of not getting any stories about anything. Right, come on, let's get started. Get some stuff on the tape. George, George, yes, yes. No, you won't. Long gone all that now. I remember when I used to come home from school, there was an old fellow down here at the bottom sitting and he says that... uh, he was caught by the fairies. I've took, he said, by the fairies one day when he was a young fella. And they were all dancing around me, he said. And I was there, frightened of that, he said. And, uh, and I said to him, how did you get on? Did they all... He said he peed on them. And they all ran... <laughs> <laughs> and they all ran away. And they all ran down among the trees. <laughs> I sang to that shift. Of them. <laughs> I think he was having you on, wasn't he? <laughs> I don't know. No, they were seeing things those days, weren't they? Why were they then? I don't know, they were all seeing fairies and dogs and guns, what all them days, weren't they? Yes. Well, George Quayle, in his book, had a theory about this, didn't he, that uh, there was something something growing on the the grain, on the wheat at the time, that was a a sort of gave them hallucinations. That's right, the smoot. Smoot, we call smoot. Mm. Have you ever had hallucinations? No, 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 only when I've had eel. <laughs> well, you're not superstitious at all. No, 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 no. Well, what? Why? There's no reason, you know. Uh. Well, my grandfather, especially up there, some of the uncles, they wouldn't start to do nothing on a Friday. Like sowing corn or sowing turnips. They'd start on Thursday night and just do a few ridges so they'd be ready for Friday. Uh. But they wouldn't start a new job on the Friday because uh, one time it was Hangman's Day, so they wouldn't. Hangman's Day? No, it was Hangman's Day, it was a Friday, so they wouldn't, oh. they wouldn't do nothing on a Friday. No new job, they do their jobs they were doing, or... Yeah, wouldn't start anything fresh. No, no, wouldn't start anything fresh on a Friday. Howard Jones and George Garrett sharing some stories from their life as farmers in the Grenaby area. Let's go back now to Walter Clark and his work preserving the Manx language. Walter didn't just record the last native Manx speakers. He transcribed the recordings into English and donated them to the museum. He said, It's slow work, but I enjoy doing it because it takes me back and I'm with the old people sitting by the hearth again. But it also makes me sad because their like is not about anymore. There's something about the character that has been lost. They were remarkable people, They led a hard life, but they weren't bothered with stress. Time wasn't money like it is today. None of them had travelled very much, except to the fair in Douglas, but they were much more contented than people are today. When you were talking to these people, it was pretty much a sort of unchanging time in the Isle of Man. However, since that time, a whole lot of words have come along that never existed in the Manx. Oh, yes. Now... Did they come across that problem? Did they hit new words that, uh, that, yeah. that, that weren't in their vocabulary? Yeah, they adapted things. Now, I asked the, the old Gao about the first vehicles that came on the island. And, of course, the first vehicles that came on the island were the traction engines, you see, which mm-hmm. made an awful din when they went round anywhere, with the flywheels going and the smoke coming out and all. And they called that Mullina Jowl. The Devil's Mill. <laughs> and he would say, Be the hoy, look out or beware. 
Then mulling the jowls yet, the devil's mill is coming. They adapted what they knew. Oh, yes. When I said, uh, when you were going to the likes of Penhinja, going to Peel or going to uh, Douglas, to Douglas, how did he go there? And she said, Cabellian, and the Iron Horse. And that was the train. The Iron Horse, yeah. And Buryan, the Iron Road, which was the railway. It makes you wonder what they'd make of television and computers, isn't it? Uh, yes, well, <laughs> I did mention that to uh, one of them, and he's about the cinema. Oh, yes. And he said, Skadoon, shadows. And I said, yes, but they're moving. Oh. And he said, Skadoon, Golmagate, shadows going about. He said, that was the description of it, you know. They, um, they were lovely people. They're wonderful people. And with those beautifully sincere words, it's time to close the archive room door for another week. With thanks to David Collister and John Kenyuk for their conversations with Walter Clark, Eddie Lees, Callan Hudson, Howard Jones and George Garrett. And my thanks to our archivist Tim Price, who finds the stories he hopes you'll enjoy. Next week, in the final programme in this series, we'll be talking about Hollandtide in the company of Dr Fenella Basin and Harvey Briggs. All our Archive Room programmes are available as podcasts at manxradio.com and via your usual podcast provider. I'll be here waiting for you again next week. But for now, this is Judith saying thank you for your company in the Archive Room. And next week, we'll have the big reveal of the identity of our mystery man. Or maybe you already know who this is. Look after yourselves and goodbye, bye, 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 bye. The Nation Station.